11. Possession. Watercolor. So there was a girl. What I've guessed, and what the history books imply, is that she was unlucky enough to have been sired by a cruel man. He beat both wife and daughter and abused them in other ways. Bright Etempus is called, among other things, the god of justice. Perhaps that was why he responded when she came into his temple, her heart full of unchildlike rage. I want him to die, she said, or so I imagine. Please, great lord, make him die. You know the truth now about Etempus. He is a god of warmth and light, which we think of as pleasant, gentle things. I once thought of him that way, too. But warmth uncooled burns. Light undimmed can hurt even my blind eyes. I should have realized. We all should have realized. He was never what we wanted him to be. So when the girl begged the bright lord to murder her father, he said, Kill him yourself. And he gifted her with a knife perfectly suited to her small, weak child's hands. She took the knife home and used it that very night. The next day, she came back to the bright lord, her hands and soul stained red, happy for the first time in her short life. I will love you forever, she declared. And he, for a rare once, found himself impressed by mortal will. Or so I imagine. The child was mad, of course. Later events proved this. But it makes sense to me that this madness, not mere religious devotion, would appeal most to the bright lord. Her love was unconditional, her purpose undiluted by such paltry considerations as conscience or doubt. It seems like him, I think, to value that kind of purity of purpose. Even though, like warmth and light, too much love is never a good thing. I woke an hour before dawn and immediately went to the door to listen for my captors. I could hear people moving about in the corridors beyond my door, and sometimes I caught snatches of the light's wordless, soothing song, more morning rituals. If they followed the pattern of previous mornings, I had an hour, maybe more, before they came. Quickly I set to work. Pushing aside the room's table as quietly as I could. Then I rolled aside the small rug to bear the wooden floor, which I inspected carefully. It was smoothly sanded, lightly finished, dusty. It felt nothing like a canvas. Neither had the bricks at the South Promenade, though, the day I'd killed the order keepers. My heart pounded as I went through the room, collecting the items I'd marked or hidden as potentially useful. A piece of cheese and a nami pepper from a previous meal. Chunks of melted fake fern wax from the candles. A bar of soap. I had nothing that felt or smelled like the color black, though, which was frustrating. I had a feeling I would need black. I knelt on the floor and picked up the cheese and took a deep breath. Keter and Paitya had called my drawing a doorway. If I drew a place I knew and opened that doorway again, Would I be able to travel there, or would I end up like the order keepers, dead in two places at once? I shook my head, angry at my own doubts. Carefully, clumsily, I sketched Art Row. The cheese was more useful as texture than color, because it felt rough, like the cobbles I'd walked across for the past ten years. I yearned for black to outline the cobbles, but forced myself to do without. The candle wax ran out first, too soft. But between it and the soap, I managed to suggest a table, and beyond that, another. The pepper ran out next, its juice stinging my fingers as I ground it to a nub, trying to depict the tree's green scent in the air. Finally, though I used my own saliva and blood to stretch it and properly color the cobbles, the cheese crumbled to bits in my fingers. To get my blood, I'd had to scratch off the scab from the previous night's bloodletting. Inconveniently, I was not menstruating. When it was done, I sat back to gaze at my work, grimacing at the ache in my back and shoulders and knees. It was a crude, small drawing, only two hand spans across since there hadn't been enough paint to do more. More impressionistic than I liked, though I had created such drawings before and seen the magic in them nevertheless. What mattered was what the depiction evoked in the mind and heart, not how it looked. And this one, however crude, had captured Art Rowe so well. That I felt homesick just looking at it. But how to make it real, and then how to step through?
I put my fingers on the edge of the drawing awkwardly. Open? No, that wasn't right. At the South Promenade, I had been too terrified for words. I closed my eyes and said it with my thoughts. Open. Nothing. I hadn't really thought that would work. Once, I had asked Matting how it felt for him using magic. I'd had a bit of his blood in me at the time, making me restless and dreamy. That time, the only magic that had manifested in me was the sound of distant atonal music. I hadn't forgotten the melody, but I'd never once hummed it aloud. All my instincts warned against doing that. I'd been disappointed, wishing for something more grandiose, and that had gotten me wondering what it felt like to be magic, not just taste it in dribs and drops. He shrugged, sounding bemused. Like walking down the street feels for you. What do you think? Walking down the street, I had informed him archly, is nothing like flying into stars or crossing a thousand miles in one step or turning into a big blue rock whenever you get mad. Of course it's the same, he'd said. When you decide to walk down a street, you flex the muscles in your legs, right? You feel out the way with your stick. You listen, make sure there's no one in the way. And then you will yourself to move, and your body moves. You believe it will happen, so it happens. That's how magic is for us. Will the door open, and it will open. Believe, and it will be. Nibbling my bottom lip, I touched the drawing again. This time, I tried imagining Art Row, as I would one of my landscapes, cobbling together the memories of a thousand mornings. It would be busy now, the area thick with local merchants and laborers and farmers and smiths beginning their daily business. In some of the buildings, just beyond my drawing, courtesans and restaurants would be opening their books for evening appointments. The pilgrims who'd prayed with the dawn would be giving way to minstrel singing for coins. I hummed a Yuuv tune that had been a favorite of mine. Sweating stonemasons, distracted accountants, I heard their hurrying feet and tense breath and felt their purposeful energy. I was not aware of the change at first. The tree's scent had been thick around me since I'd been brought to the house of the risen sun. Slowly, subtly, it changed, becoming the fainter, more distant scent I was used to. Then that scent mingled with the smells of the promenade, horse shit and sewage and herbs and perfumes. I heard murmuring voices and dismissed them, but they were not coming from within the house. I did not notice the change at all, really, until the drawing opened up beneath my hands and I nearly fell into it. Startled, I yelped and stumbled back. Then I stared, blinked, leaned close and stared more. The cloth on the nearest row table. It moved. I could not see people, perhaps because I hadn't drawn any figures, but I could hear the gabble of a crowd in the distance moving feet, rattling wheels. A breeze blew, tossing a few fallen tree leaves across the cobbles of the promenade, and my hair lifted off my neck just a little. Intriguing, said the nipery behind me. Yelping in shock, I tried to simultaneously jump to my feet and scoot away from the voice. Instead, I tripped over the rolled-up rug and went sprawling. While I struggled upright, grabbing for the bed to get my bearings, I realized too late that I had heard him enter and had dismissed it. He had been standing in the room, watching me, for quite some time. He came over, taking my hand and helping me to my feet. I snatched my hand away as soon as I could. Beyond him, I realized in dismay, the drawing had not only stopped being real, but also it had faded from view entirely, its magic gone. It takes great concentration to wield magic in a controlled fashion, he said. Impressive, given that you've had no training, and you did it with nothing but food and candle wax. Truly amazing. Of course, it means we'll have to watch you eat from now on, and search your quarters regularly for anything bearing pigment. I clenched my fist before I thought to stop myself. Why are you here? I asked. It came out far more belligerent than it should have, but I couldn't help it. I was too angry over my lost chance. I came, ironically, to ask you to demonstrate your magical abilities for me. I'm still a scrivener, even if I've left the order. Unique manifestations of inherited magic were my particular field of study. He sat down in one of the room's chairs, oblivious to my seething fury. I should note, however, that if you meant to escape through that portal, your efforts would have ultimately been futile. 
The house of the Risen Sun is surrounded by a barrier that prevents magic from entering or leaving. A variation on my empty, actually. He tapped the wooden floor with his foot. If you had tried passing through it via that portal, well, I'm not certain what would have happened, but you or your remains would not have gotten far. Broken bowel, voices screaming. I felt ill and defeated. It wasn't big enough to pass through anyway. I muttered, slumping onto the bed. True. With practice, however, and more paint, no doubt you could pass through these portals. That got my attention. What? Your magic isn't that different from my own, he said, and abruptly I recalled the holes he'd used to capture me and Madding and the others. Both are variants on the scrivening technique that permits instantaneous transport through matter and distance via a gate, which is itself merely an approximation of the god's ability to traverse time and space at will. It seems that your gift expresses itself extraversely, however, while mine is introversive. I groaned. Pretend I haven't spent my life studying musty old scrolls full of made-up words. Ah. My apologies. Let me try an analogy. Imagine that you hold a lump of gold in your hands. Gold is quite soft in its pure form. You can mold it with your fingers if you exert enough pressure. Then it can become many things: coins, a bracelet, a cup to hold water. Yet gold isn't useful for every purpose. A sword made of gold would bend easily and be too heavy to wield. For that, a different metal, say iron, is better. A rustle of cloth was my warning before Date took my hand. His fingers were dry, thick-skinned, calloused at the tips. He turned over my hand, exposing my own calluses from carving wood and clipping linen saplings, and also the stains from my makeshift paints. I did not pull away, though I wanted to. I did not like the feel of his hand. The magic in you is like gold, he said. You've learned to shape it in one way, but there are others. I imagine you'll discover them with time and experimentation. The magic in me is more like iron. It can be shaped and used in similar ways, but its fundamental properties and uses are very different. And I, unlike you, have learned many ways to shape it. Now, do you understand? I did. Date's holes or portals or whatever he called them were like my doorways. He created them at will. Perhaps using his own method to invoke them as I used painting, but while his magic opened a dark, cold space devoid of everything, my magic opened the way to existing spaces or created new spaces out of nothingness. While I mulled this, I found myself rubbing my eyes with my free hand. They ached, though not as badly as on the previous occasions I'd used my magic. I suppose I hadn't overdone it this time. And your eyes," Date said. I stopped rubbing them, annoyed. He missed nothing. That's even more unique. You saw Siriman's blood sigil. Can you see other magic? I considered lying, but in spite of myself, I was intrigued. Yes, I said. Any magic. He seemed to consider this. Can you see me? No. You don't have any god words, or you're masking them. What? I gestured vaguely with my hands, which gave me an excuse to pull away from him. With most scriveners, I see god words written on their skin, glowing. I can't see the skin, but I can see the words wrapped around their arms and so on. Fascinating. Most scriveners do that, you know, when they've mastered a new sigil or word script. It's tradition. They write the sigils on their skin to symbolize their comprehension. The ink washes off, but I suppose there's a magical residue. You don't see it. No, Lady Ori, your eyes are quite unique. I have nothing that compares. Although, all at once, Date became visible to me. I was too distracted by his looks at first to realize the significance of what I saw. I couldn't help it because he was not Amen, or at least not completely, not with hair so straight and limp that it cupped his skull as if painted on. He wore it short. Probably because the priest's fashion of long hair, worn in a queue, would look ridiculous on him. His skin was paler than Madding's, but there were other things about him that hinted at a less than pure Amun heritage. He was shorter than me, 
and his eyes were as dark as polished darwood. Those eyes would have been more at home among my people or one of the high north races. How in all the gods' names had an Aramary, proudest member of the Amun race and notorious for their scorn of anyone not pure Amun, contrived to marry a non-Amun rebel scrivener? But as my shock at this realization faded, a more important one finally struck me. I could see him. Him, that was, and not the markings of his scrivener power. In fact, I saw no god words on him at all. He was simply visible, all over, like a godling. But the lights hated godlings. What the hells are you? I whispered. So you can see me, he said. I'd wondered. I suppose it works only when I use magic, though. When you... He pointed above us, off toward a corner of the room. I followed his finger, confused, but saw nothing. Wait. I blinked, squinted, as if that would help. There was something else etched against the dark of my vision. Something small, no bigger than a ten-mary coin or Saruman's blood sigil. It hovered, glimmering with an impossible black radiance that shimmered faintly. That was the only way I'd been able to sift it from the darkness that I usually saw. It looked just like... I swallowed. It was. A tiny, almost unnoticeable version of the same holes that had attacked us at Madding's house. I can enlarge it at will, he said, when I finally spotted it. I often use portals at this size for surveillance. I understood then why he'd compared me to gold and himself to iron. My magic was prettier, but his made a better weapon. You haven't answered my question, I said. What am I? He looked amused. I'm the same as you. No, I said. You're a Scrivener. I might have a knack for magic, but lots of people have that. You have more than a knack for magic, Lady Ori. This? He gestured toward the floor where my drawing was. Is something that only a trained, first-rate Scrivener of many years' experience could attempt. And that Scrivener would need hours of drawing time and half a dozen fail-safe scripts on hand in case the activation went wrong, neither of which you seem to need. He smiled thinly. Neither do I, I should note. I am considered something of a prodigy among Scriveners because of it. I imagine you would be too, if you had been found and trained early. My hands clenched into fists on my knees. What are you? I'm a demon, he said, and so are you. I fell silent, more in confusion than in shock. That would come later. Demons aren't real, I said at last. The gods killed them all eons ago. There's nothing left but stories to frighten children. Date patted my hand where it sat on my knee. At first I thought it was a clumsy attempt on his part to comfort me. The gesture felt awkward and forced. Then I realized he didn't like touching me either. The Order of Etempus punishes unauthorized magic use, Date said. Have you never wondered why? Actually, I had not. I thought it was just another way for the Order to control who had power and who didn't. But I said what the priests had taught me. It's a matter of public safety. Most people can use magic, but only Scriveners should, because they have the training to keep it safe. Write even one line of a sigil wrong, and the ground could open up, lightning could strike, anything might happen. Yes, though that isn't the only reason. The edict against wild magic actually predates the Scrivening art that tamed it. He was watching me. He was like Shiny, like Saruman. I could feel his gaze. So many strong-willed people around me, all of them dangerous. The gods' war was not the first war among the gods, after all. Long before the three fought among themselves, they fought their own children, the half-breed ones they'd born with mortal men and women. All of a sudden, inexplicably, I thought of my father. I heard his voice in my ears, saw the gentle wavelets of his song as they rolled the air, Saruman's voice. There had been rumors about him. The demons lost that war, Date said. He spoke softly, for which I was grateful, because all at once I felt unsteady, chilled as if the room had grown colder. It was foolish for them to fight, really, given the god's power. Some of the demons no doubt realized this and hid instead. 
I closed my eyes and inwardly mourned my father all over again. Those demons survived, I said. My voice shook. That's what you're saying? Not many of them, but enough. My father. His father, too, he told me once. And his grandmother, and an uncle, and more. Generations of us in the Morrowland, the world's heart, hidden among the bright lord's most devout people. Yes, said Date. They survived, and some of them, perhaps to camouflage themselves, hid among mortals with more distant, thinner god's blood in their veins, mortals who had to struggle to use magic, borrowing the god's language to facilitate even simple tasks. The god's legacy is what turned the key in humankind, unlocking the door to magic. But in most mortals, that door is barely ajar. Yet there are some, few among us, who are born with more. In those mortals, the door is wide open. We need no sigils, no years of study. Magic is ingrained in our very flesh. He touched my face, just under one eye, and I flinched. Call us throwbacks, if you will. Like our murdered ancestors, we are the best of mortal kind, and everything our gods fear. He dropped his hand onto mine again, and it was not awkward this time. It was possessive. You're never going to let me go, are you? I said softly. He paused for a moment. No, Lady Ori, he said, and I heard him smile. We aren't. Twelve. Destruction. Charcoal and Blood. Sketch. I have a request, I said to the Nypri when he rose to leave. My friends, Madding and the others, I need to know what you plan to do with them. That isn't something you need to know, Lady Ori. Date's tone was gently chiding. I set my jaw. You seem to want me to join you willingly. He fell silent for a moment, contemplating. That was gratifying because my statement had been a gamble. I had no idea why he wanted me, beyond the fact that we were both demons. Perhaps he thought I could eventually develop magic as powerful as his, or perhaps demons had some symbolic value to the new lights. Whatever the reason, I knew leverage when I saw it. At last, he said, My wife believes you can be rehabilitated, made to see reason. He glanced at my drawing on the floor. I, however... I'm beginning to wonder whether you're too dangerous to be worth the effort. I nibbled my bottom lip. I won't try that again. We are both etempens here, Lady Ori. You'll try it if you think it will work, and if there is insufficient disincentive. He folded his arms, thoughtful. Hmm. I've been trying to figure out what to do with him. What? Your Morona friend. My... I started... You mean shiny. So he hadn't escaped. Damnation. Yes, whatever his name is. For once, Date sounded annoyed. I thought he was a godling too, given his intriguing ability to return from death. But I've had him in the empty for days now, and he's shown no sign of resistance, magical or otherwise. He just keeps dying. The small hairs along my skin prickled. I opened my mouth to say, that's our god you're torturing, you bastard. But then I stopped. What would Date do if he knew he had the bright lord of order as his prisoner? Would he even believe it? Or would he question Shiny and be shocked to learn, as I had been, that Shiny loved the night lord and would disapprove of any action that threatened him? What would these madmen do then? Maybe he's like us, I said instead. A d-demon. It was hard to say the words. No, I did test him. There are distinct properties that can be observed in the blood. Aside from his peculiar ability, he's mortal in every way that I can determine. He sighed and did not see my start as I realized that was why they'd taken my blood. The Order has discovered any number of minor magical variants over the centuries. I suppose he's just another of those. Date paused long enough for the silence to unnerve me further. This man lived with you in the city, I'm told. I can't kill him, but I think you've guessed the ways in which I can make his brief periods of life unpleasant. You are valuable to me. He 
is not. Do we understand each other? I swallowed. Yes, Lord Date. I understand you perfectly. Excellent. I'll have him placed with you later today, then. I should warn you, though. After this much time in the empty, he may require... assistance. I clenched my fists on my knees while he knocked on the door to be let out. But as he did so, something changed. It was just a momentary flicker, so fast that I thought I imagined it. For that instant, Date's body looked wholly different. Wrong. I saw his nearer arm curiously doubled as he rested it on the door sill. Two arms, not one. Two hands gripping the smooth wood. I blinked in surprise and suddenly the image was gone. Then the door opened and so was Date. I slept. I didn't mean to, but I was exhausted after my effort to use magic. When I opened my still twinging eyes, the light of sunset was thin and fading on my skin. Someone had been in the room during that time, which meant I'd slept hard. I was usually quick to wake at any untoward noise. My visitors had been busy. I found the furniture put back in place and a tray of food on the table. The candles were gone when I checked, replaced by a single small lantern of a design that I found odd, until I realized it held nothing more than a slow-burning moistened wick, no reservoir of oil that I could use for painting. Other items in the room had been removed or replaced too, ostensibly because they could have been used for their pigment. The food was a bowl of some sort of porridge, as bland and textureless as they could have made it and kept it palatable. And the air smelled of floor cleanser. I felt a moment's grief for my drawing, poor as it had been. I ate and then went to the window, wondering if I would ever escape from this place. I guessed that I had been in prison for five days, maybe six. Soon it would be Gebra, the spring equinox. All over the world, white halls would deck themselves in festive ribbons and in conda, lanterns given a special fuel to make their flame burn white instead of red or gold. The halls would throw open their doors to all comers, celebrating the approach of summer's long days. And even now, with so many doubting their faith, those halls would be full. Yet at the same time, in every city, there would be ceremonies dedicated to the night lord too, and to the lady. That was something new and still strange to me. An hour passed before the door of my cell opened again. Three men entered, carrying something heavy, two somethings, I realized, as they grunted and jostled the table and chairs out of the way. The first object they put down squeaked faintly, and I realized it was another cot, like the one I slept on. The second object they put down was shiny, dumped on the cot. He groaned once and then lay still. A present from the Nipri, said one of the men, and the other laughed. They left, and I hurried to Shiny's side. His flesh was as cold as a corpse's. I had never felt him that cold. He never stayed dead long enough to completely lose body temperature. Yet when I fumbled for his pulse, it was racing. His breath came in harsh, quick pants. They had cleaned him up. He was wearing the sleeveless white smock and pants of a new initiate. But what had they bathed him in? Ice water? Shiny? All thoughts of his real name fled my mind as I wrestled him onto his back, then tugged a blanket over him. I touched his face and he jerked away, making a quick animal sound. It's Ori. 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 His voice was hoarse, as mine had been, perhaps for the same reason. But he settled after that, no longer moving away from my touch. He was mortal, Date had said, but I knew the truth. Beneath the mortal veneer, he was the god of light, and he had spent five days trapped in a lightless hell. Hurrying across the room, I found the lantern, which thankfully I had not yet blown out. Would such a tiny light help him? I brought it closer, putting it on the shelf above Shiny's bed. His eyes were shut tight, and all his muscles quivered like wires ready to snap. He was only a little warmer. Seeing no better option, I slipped under the covers with him and tried to warm him with my body. This was not easy, as the cot was narrow and Shiny took up all but a few inches of it. Finally, I had to climb on top of him, resting my head on his chest. 
I wasn't fond of the overly intimate position, but there was nothing else to be done. I was completely caught by surprise when Shiny suddenly wrapped himself around me and turned us over, holding me solidly in place with an arm around the waist, a hand cupping my head against his shoulder, and his leg thrown over mine. I was not quite pinned, but I couldn't move much either. Not that I tried, I was too stunned for that, wondering what had prompted this sudden gesture of affection, if that it was. He seemed reassured by the fact that I didn't fight him. The quivering tension gradually drained out of his body, his breath against my ear slowing to something more normal. After a while, we both grew warm, and despite spending the whole day asleep, I could not quite help it. I slept again. When I awoke, I guessed that it was late, near midnight, give or take a few hours. I was still sleepy, but had a growing need to urinate, which was a problem because I was still neatly tucked into the complicated tangle of Shiny's body. His long, slow breaths told me he was asleep, and deeply, which he probably needed after his ordeal. Working carefully and slowly, I extricated myself from his grip and then eased my way to a sitting position, from which I managed to clamber over him to reach the floor at last. By this point, the need had grown urgent, so I stood to hurry. A hand caught my wrist, and I yelped. Where are you going? Shiny rasped. Taking a deep breath to slow my heart, I said, The bathroom, and waited for him to let me go. He didn't move. I shifted from one foot to the other, uncomfortably. Finally, I said, If you don't let go, the floor is going to be very wet in a minute. I'm trying, he said, very softly. I had no idea what that meant. Then I realized his hand on my wrist was loosening and tightening and loosening again, as if he could not quite will it to open. Confused, I reached out to touch his face. His brow was furrowed. He drew in another deep breath through gritted teeth, then jerkily, deliberately released my wrist. I puzzled over this for a moment, but nature warned me not to dawdle. I felt his eyes on me for the whole hurried walk across the room. It was better when I came out. The room held less tension. When I went over to him, I reached for his face and found his bold shoulders, head hanging between them, heaving like he'd just run a long and exhausting race. I sat down beside him. Want to tell me what that was about? No. I sighed. I think I deserve an explanation, if only so I can plan my bathroom breaks accordingly. Predictably, he said nothing. Whatever lingering reverence I'd felt for him vanished. I was tired. For months I had endured his moods and his silence, his temper, his insults. Because of him, I had lost my life in shadow. In my trollish moments, I could even blame him for my captivity. Date had found me because I'd killed the order keepers, which wouldn't have happened if Shiny hadn't made them angry. Fine, I said, getting up to return to my own cot. But when I stepped forward, his hand caught my wrist again, tighter this time. You will stay, he said. I tried to yank my arm free. Let go of me. Stay, he snapped. I command you to stay. I twisted my arm, breaking his hold, and stepped back quickly, finding the table and maneuvering so that it was between me and him. You can't command me, I said, trembling with fury. You're not a god anymore, remember? You're just a pathetic mortal as helpless as the rest of us. You dare? Shiny rose to his feet. Of course I dare. I gripped the table edge, hard enough to make my fingertips sting. What's wrong with you? You think just because you say something I'll obey? Will you kill me if I don't? You think that makes you right? My gods, no wonder the Night Lord hates you, if that's how you think. Silence fell. I had run out of rage. I waited for his, ready to throw it back at him, but he said nothing. And after a long, pent moment, I heard him sit down again. Please stay, he said at last. What? But I had heard him. For a moment, I almost walked away anyway. I was that tired of him. But he said nothing more, and in the silence, my anger faded enough that I realized what that quiet plea must have cost. It was not the way of the bright to ask for what one wanted. So I went to him. But when he touched my hand, 
I pulled back. A trade, I said. You've taken enough from me. Give something back. He let out a long sigh and touched my hand again. I was surprised to find it trembling. Later, Ori, he said, barely louder than a whisper. Completely confused, I reached up to touch his not Morona hair with my free hand. His head was still bowed. Later, I will tell you everything. Not now. Please, just stay. I didn't make a decision, not in any conscious way. I was still angry. But this time, when he tugged my hand, I let him draw me forward. I sat beside him again, and when he lay down, I let him pull me down as well, positioning me on my side and spooning himself behind me. He kept his arms loose so that I could get up if I needed to. He put his face into my hair, and I chose not to pull away. I did not sleep for the rest of that night. I'm not certain he did either. There may be a way for us to get free of this place, Shiny said the next day. It was noon. One of the light's initiates had just left, after bringing us lunch and staying to see that we ate it all. He took away the leftovers and searched out my hiding places, too, to make sure there was no stored food under the mattress or rug. No chit-chat this time, and no efforts to convert either of us. No one took me away for chores or lessons. I felt oddly neglected. How? I asked, then guessed. Your magic? It comes when you protect me. Yes. I licked my lips. But I'm in danger now. Have been since the lights took me. There wasn't the slightest glimmer of magic in him. It may be a matter of degree, or perhaps a physical threat is required. I sighed, wanting to hope. That's more maybe and perhaps than I like to hear. I don't suppose anyone thought to give you instructions on how you work now. No. What do you propose, then? I pick a fight with Saruman, and when she fights back, you blow up the house and kill us all? There was a moment's pause. I think my levity annoyed him. In essence, yes. Though there would be little logic in me killing you, so I'll moderate the amount of force I use. I appreciate your consideration, Shiny. Really, I do. So the rest of the day passed with aching slowness as I waited and tried not to hope. Shiny, for all his promises to explain the previous day's bizarre behavior, said nothing more about it. I gathered he was still recovering from his ordeal in the empty. He'd slept through dawn, which he had never done before, though he glowed as usual. That, plus my company, seemed to restore him. He had been his old taciturn self since he'd awoken. Still, I felt his eyes on me more often than usual that day, and once he touched me. It was when I'd gotten up to pace, fruitlessly, hoping to vent restless energy. I brushed past Shiny, and he reached out to touch my arm in passing. I would have dismissed it as a mistake or my imagination if not for the previous evening. It was as if he needed contact now and again for some reason that made no sense to me. Though when had anything about Shiny made sense? I didn't ask questions, preoccupied as I was with my own concerns, like Date's revelation that I was a demon. I did not feel much like a monster. That didn't make me eager to discuss it with Shiny, who had slaughtered my ancestors and banned his children from ever again creating more beings like me so I was content to let him keep his secrets for the time being. Toward evening, I was almost relieved when there came a brisk knock at the door, followed by the arrival of another initiate. As I rose to follow the girl, Shiny simply stood and came to my side. I heard her splutter for a moment, caught off guard, but finally she sighed and took us both. Thus we arrived in the private dining hall, where Saruman waited with Date. No one else this time, beyond the servants who were already busy setting out the meal and a few guards. If Saruman was bothered by Shiny's presence, she said nothing to that effect. Welcome, Lady Ori, she said as we sat down. I turned my face toward the faint glimmer of her Aramary blood sigil in an effort to be polite, though I was beginning to hate being called Lady Ori. I knew what they meant by it now. 
The demons of old had been the three's offspring too, and perhaps as deserving of respect as the godlings, and not human. Something I was not ready to think about myself. Good afternoon, Lady Saruman, I said, and Lord Date. I could not see him, but his presence was as palpable against my skin as cool moonlight. Lady Ori, Date said, then so subtly that I almost didn't catch it. His tone changed as he addressed Shiny. And a good afternoon to your companion. Are you perhaps willing to introduce yourself today? Shiny said nothing, and Date let out a sigh of barely contained exasperation. I had to fight the urge to laugh, because as amusing as it was to hear Shiny drive someone else mad for a change, I was surprised at how quickly Date's temper broke. For whatever reason, Date seemed to have taken an instant dislike to him. He doesn't talk to me either, I said, keeping my tone light. Not much, anyway. Hmm, said Date. I waited for him to ask more questions about Shiny, but he fell silent, too, radiating hostility. Interesting, said Saruman, which annoyed me now because it was exactly what I'd been thinking. In any case, Lady Ori, I trust your day went well? I was bored, actually, I said. I'd have preferred to be on another of those work crews. Then I could have at least gotten out of my room. I can imagine, said Saruman. You seem the type of woman to prefer a more spontaneous, energetic approach to life. Well, yes. She nodded, the sigil bobbing in the dark. You may find this difficult to accept, Lady Ori, but your trials have been a necessary step in cementing you to our cause. As you found today, having no other options makes even menial labor desirable. Sever one attachment and others become more viable. It's a harsh method, but one that has been used by both the Order and the Aramary family over the centuries to great effect. I refrained from saying what I really thought of that effect and covered my anger by taking a sip from my wine glass. I thought you people were opposed to the Order's methods. Oh, no! only their recent change in doctrine. In most other ways, the Order's methods have been proven by time, so we adopt them gladly. We are still devoted to the ways of the Bright Father, after all. I should have known what that would set off. In what way? Shiny asked suddenly, startling me in mid-swallow. Does attacking the Tempest's children serve him? Silence fell around the table. Mine was astonishment. So was Saruman's. Dates? That I could not read. But he put down his fork. It is our feeling, he said, his words ever so slightly clipped, that they do not belong in the mortal realm, and that they defy the Father's will by coming here. We know, after all, that they vanished from this plane after the gods' war, when he Tempest took exclusive control of the heavens. Now that his control appears to have, hmm, slipped, the godlings, like rebellious children, take advantage. Since we have the ability to correct the matter, I heard the fabric of his robes shift, a shrug. We do as he would expect of his followers. Hold his children hostage, said Shiny, and only a fool would not have heard the kindling fury in his voice. And kill them? Saruman laughed, though it sounded affected. You assume that we, why not? Date, too, was coldly angry. I heard some of the servants shift uneasily in the background. During the God's War, their kind used this world as a battleground. Whole cities died at the godlings' hands. They cared nothing for those mortal lives lost. At this, I grew angry myself. What is this, then? I asked. Revenge? That's why you're keeping Madding and the others? They are nothing, Date snapped. Fodder, bait. We kill them to attract higher prey. Oh, yes. I couldn't help laughing. I forgot. You actually think you can kill the Night Lord. I heard, but did not think about Shiny's swift intake of breath. I do indeed, Date said coolly. He snapped his fingers, summoning one of the servants. There was a quick murmured exchange, and then the servant left. And I shall prove it to you, Lady Ori.
Date, said Saruman. She sounded concerned. Annoyed? I could not tell. She was Aramary. Perhaps Date's temper was spoiling some elaborate plan. He ignored her. You forget, Lady Ori. There is ample precedent for what we've done. Or perhaps you don't know how the God's War actually began? I assume that you, having been a God's lover, I became acutely aware of Shiny. He sat very still. I could hardly even hear him breathe. It was ridiculous that I felt sorry for him in that instant. He had murdered his sister, enslaved his brother, bullied his children for two thousand years. He had so little concern for life in general, including mine and his own, that more deaths should have been meaningless to him. And yet, I had touched his hand that day at Rolla's memorial. I had heard the waver in his steady, stolid voice when he'd spoken of the Night Lord. Whatever problems he had, however much of a bastard he was, Shiny was still capable of love. Matting had been wrong about that. And how would any man feel on learning that his daughter had been murdered in imitation of his own sins? I've heard, I said uneasily. Shiny kept silent. Then you understand said Date. Bright Etempus desired, and killed to obtain that desire. Why should we not do the same? Bright Etempus also embodies order, I said, hoping to change the subject. If everyone in the world killed to get what they wanted, there would be anarchy. Untrue, Date said. What would happen is what has happened. Those with power, the Aramary and to a lesser degree the nobility and priests of the order, kill with impunity. No others may do so without their permission. The right to kill has become the most coveted privilege of power in this world, as in the heavens. We worship him not because he is the best of our gods, but because he is, or was, the greatest killer among them. The dining room door opened then. I heard another murmur. The servant was returning. Something flickered, and then abruptly, a silvery, shifting gleam appeared in my vision. Startled, I peered at it, trying to figure out what it was. Something small, only an inch or so in length, oddly shaped, pointy like the tip of a knife, but far too small to be used that way. Ah, so you can see it, Date said. He sounded pleased again. This, Lady Ori, is an arrowhead. A very special one. Do you recognize it? I frowned. I'm not exactly into archery, Lord Date. He laughed, already in a better mood. What I meant was, do you recognize the power in it? You should. This arrowhead, the substance that comprises it, was made from your blood. I stared at the thing, which shone like God's blood, not quite as bright, and stranger a moving, inconstant swirl of magic, rather than the steady gleam I was used to. My blood should have been nothing special. I was just a mortal. Why would you make something from my blood? Our blood has grown thin over the ages, said Date. He set the thing down on the table in front of him. It was said that Etempus needed only a few drops to kill Enifa. These days, the quantity needed to be effective is... Impractical. We therefore distill it, concentrating its power, then shape the resulting product into a more usable form. Before I could speak, there was a sharp thump as wood hit the floor, and the dining table shook hard. Demon, Shiny said. He was standing, his hands planted on the table. It shook with the force of his rage. You dare to threaten... Guards! Saruman, angry and alarmed, sit down, sir, or... Whatever she might have said was lost. There was a crash of serving ware and furniture as Shiny lunged forward, his weight making the table jolt hard against my ribs. More startled than hurt, I scrambled backward, my hand flailing for the stick that should have been beside me. Of course, there was nothing, so I tripped on the dining hall's thick rug and went sprawling, practically into the fireplace. I heard shouts, a scream from Saruman, a violent scuffle of flesh and cloth. Men converged from several directions, though not on me.
I pushed myself upright to get away from the close heat of the fire, my hand scrabbling for purchase on the smooth, sculpted stone of the hearth. And as I did so, my hand slipped into something warm and gritty. Ash. Behind me, it sounded as though another god's war had broken out. Shiny cried out as someone hit him. An instant later, that person went flying. There were choking sounds, grunts of effort, more dishes shattering. But there was no magic, I realized in alarm. I could see none of them. Nothing except the tiny pale glimmer of the arrowhead where it had fallen to the floor, and the swift moving bob of Saruman's blood sigil as she ran to the door to shout for help. Shiny fought for his own rage, not to protect me, and that meant he was just a man. They would overcome him soon, inevitably. The ash. I felt around, closer to the fire, ready to snatch my hand back if I encountered something hot. My fingers fumbled over a hard, irregular lump, quite warm, but not painfully so. Bits of it crumbled away as I touched it. A chunk of old wood that had been burned to charcoal, probably over several days. The color black. Behind me, Date had managed to get free of Shiny, though he was wheezing and hoarse. Saruman had him. I heard her murmuring worry to see if he was all right. Behind them, a flurry of blows and shouts as more men ran in. Inspiration struck like a kick to the gut. Scrambling back with the charcoal in my hand, I shoved aside the rug and began to scrape the charcoal against the floor, grinding it in circles, around and around. Someone called for rope. Saruman shouted not to bother with rope, just kill him, damn it. And around and around and... Lady Ori! Date, his voice rough and puzzled. And around and around, feverishly, sweat from my forehead dripping down to smear the blackness, blood from my scraped knuckles too, forming a circle as deep and dark as a hole into nowhere, cold and silent and terrible and empty. And somewhere in that emptiness, blue, green, and bright, warm and gentle and irreverent, Dearest God, stop her! Stop her! I knew the texture of his soul. I knew the sound of him, like chimes. I knew that he owed Date and the New Lights a debt of pain and blood, and I wanted that debt repaid with all my heart. Beneath my fingers and my eyes, the hole appeared. Its edges, ragged where bits of the charcoal had broken off with the force of my grinding. I shouted into it, Matting! And he came. What burst from the hole was light, a scintillating blue-green mass of it that roiled like a thundercloud. After an instant, it shivered and became the shape I knew better, a man formed of living, impossibly moving aquamarine. For a moment, he hovered where the cloud had been, turning slowly, perhaps disoriented by the empty's deprivations. But I felt rage wash the room the instant he spied Date and Saruman and the others and I heard his chimes rise to a harsh, brassy jangle of dire intent. Date was shouting over the guard's panicked cries, demanding something. I saw a faint flicker from his direction, almost drowned out by Madding's blaze. Madding uttered a wordless, inhuman roar that shook the whole house and shot forward, then jerked back, tumbling to the floor as something struck him. I waited for him to rise, angrier, Mortals could annoy gods but never stop them. To my surprise, however, Madding gasped, the light of his facets dimming abruptly. He did not get up. Faintly, through shock, I heard Shiny cry out in something that sounded much like anguish. I should not have been afraid, yet fear soured my mouth as I scrambled to my feet, stepping onto my own drawing in my haste to reach him. It was just inert charcoal now, I tripped over the rug again, righted myself, fell over a chair that lay across the floor, and finally crawled. I reached Madding, who lay on his side, and pulled him onto his back. There was no light in his belly. The rest of him shone as usual, though dimmer than I'd ever seen, but that part of him I could not see at all. He clutched at it, and I followed his hands to find the smooth, hard substance of his body broken by something long and thin, made of wood that jutted up. A crossbow bolt. I grasped its shaft in both hands and yanked it free. Madding cried out, arching, 
and the blotch of nothingness at his middle spread farther. I could see the arrow's tip, Date's arrowhead, the one made from my blood. There wasn't much left. I touched it and found that it had the consistency of soft chalk, crumbling with just the pressure of my fingers. All at once, Matting guttered like a candle flame, his jewel facets becoming dull mortal flesh and tangled hair. But I still couldn't see part of him. I felt for his belly and found blood and a deep puncture. It wasn't healing. My blood, in him, working through his body like poison, snuffing out his magic as it went along. No, not just his magic. I threw aside the arrow and touched his face, my fingers shaking. Matt? I... I don't know. This doesn't make sense. It's my blood, but... Matting drew in a harsh breath and coughed. Blood. God's blood. Which should have shone with its own light, covered his lips, but it was dark, obscuring the parts of him that I could see. Those were fading from view, too. The arrow was killing him. No! He was a god. They did not die. Except Rolla had. And Enifa had. And... Matting choked, swallowed, focused on me. It made no sense that he laughed, but he did. Always knew you were special, Ori, he said. A demon. A legend. Gods. Always knew something. He shook his head. I could barely see for his dimness and my tears. And here I thought, I'd have to watch you die. No, I, I won't. This isn't, no. I shook my head babbling. Matting caught my hand, his own slick and hot with blood. Don't let him use you, Ori. He lifted his head to make sure I heard him. I could barely see his face, though I could feel it, hot and fevered. They never understood. Too quick to judge. You aren't just a weapon. He shuddered, his head falling back, his eyes drifting shut. I would have loved you until... He vanished. I could feel him beneath my hand still, but he was not there. Don't hide from me, I said. My voice was soft and did not carry, but he should have heard me, should have obeyed. Hand seized me, dragged me to my feet. I dangled limply between them, trying to will it. I want to see you. You forced my hand, Lady Ori. Date. He came over, visible for once. He had used magic during the struggle. He was rubbing his throat, his face bruised and bloody. Someone had torn part of his robes. He looked thoroughly furious. I hated that I could see him and not matting. A doorway into my empty. He laughed once, without humor, then grimaced, as this hurt his bruised throat. Amazing. Did you plan this, you and your nameless companion? I should have known better than to trust a woman who would give her body to one of them. He spat downward, perhaps at Madding's corpse. Not Madding. There's nothing there that isn't him. Then he turned and snarled at one of the guards to come over. Bring your sword, he added. I prayed then. I had no idea if Shiny could hear me or if he cared. I didn't care. Bright Father, please let this man kill me. Must you? asked Saruman. Her voice edged with distaste. She might still be turned to our cause. It must be done within moments of death. I don't intend to let this mess go to waste. He reached over to take something from the guard. I waited, feeling nothing as Date turned a look on me that was as cold as the wind in the tree's highest branches. When Bridie Tempest killed Enifa, he said, he also tore her body open and took from it a piece of flesh that contained all her power. Had he not done so, the universe would have ended. Killing the Night Lord runs the same risk, so I've spent years researching where the seat of a god's soul lies when they incarnate themselves in flesh. He lifted the sword then, two-handed, so fast that for an instant I saw six arms instead of two, and three sets of teeth bared in effort. 
there was a hollow whoosh of cloven air. I felt a stirring of wind against my face, but the impact, when it came, was not in my body, though I heard the wet chuff as it struck flesh. I frowned, horror struggling up through the numbness in my mind. Madding. Date tossed the sword aside, gestured at another man to help. They bent. The smell of God's blood rose around me, thick and cloying, familiar, as flat and wrong here as it had been in the alley where I'd found Rolla. I heard, God's, sounds I would expect in one of the infinite hells, meat tearing, bone and gristle cracking apart. Then Date rose. His hand had gone dark, holding something. His robes were splattered and intermittent, too. He gazed at the thing in his hand with a look that I could not interpret, not without the touch of fingers, but I guessed. Revulsion, some and resignation, but also eagerness, lust worthy of a god. When he lifted Madding's heart to his lips and bit down, I remember nothing more.